1: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: When word came that Mikhail Gorbachev, the last president of the Soviet Union, had died at the age of 91, there was a mix of sadness in the West and sorrow, silence, and indifference in parts of Russia. This is no surprise. Gorbachev's relatively short time in power was marked by extraordinary accomplishments, including the withdrawal of Soviet forces from Afghanistan and the end of the Cold War. In Moscow, however, President Putin has described this period in slightly different terms, stating that the end of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and with Gorbachev's contested legacy in mind, I thought we'd focus in on one of his most controversial achievements, his Intermediate-Range Nuclear Force INF Treaty, which eliminated, for the first time in history, an entire class of nuclear weapons. To take us through this history, we have my old friend Dr. Susan Colborn on the podcast. Now Susie is the author of a new book, Euromissiles, the nuclear weapons that nearly destroyed NATO, making her the ideal person to help us understand Gorbachev's controversial time in power and his enduring legacy. Hi, Susie. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing?
3: I'm good. How are you today?
2: I'm good. I'm in New York City, so apologies for all the sirens that go past. I mean, I'm in a hotel room. It's meant to be insulated, but it just sounds like the police are constantly outside my window, which I don't think is a reflection on me, I hope.
3: We hope. We'll keep our fingers crossed.
2: We keep our fingers crossed. Where are you in the world?
3: I am in Durham, North Carolina. North Carolina.
2: Durham, North Carolina. That has to be number one on my next place to visit in America. Not just because it's meant to be incredibly beautiful, but of course, because you're there.
3: Well, we would love to have you anytime. And if you like barbecue, all the better.
2: Who doesn't like barbecue? Absolutely. (laughs) Barbecue is one of my favorite foods. I mean, next to pizza, of course. And there is a seamless link into talking about today's topic, about (laughs) Mikhail Gorbachev, the, uh, well, the premier of Pizza Hut in the Soviet Union. We've all seen that famous, infamous commercial that was aired at the time, which kind of really epitomized his perception in Russia as maybe someone who was pandering a bit too much towards the West. I mean, you're selling the pizza of a major American conglomerate, but then you're also trying to open Russia to the world and improve the well-being of the Russian people. So take us into a little bit of the history of Gorbachev. When was he born? Where did he come from?
3: I think the best place to start is maybe in the words of Gorbachev himself. If we think about his legacy and what his political career meant for international relations, Gorbachev himself, who often referred to himself in the third person, told a biographer that Gorbachev is complicated. And that seems like the only place to start. Uh, Gorbachev's legacy is complicated, something I'm sure we'll discuss further. But his life tracked with some of the defining moments of the Soviet Union. He was in so many ways a product of his time. He was born in 1931 in the southern part of the Russian Republic to a Russo-Ukrainian peasant family. His father fought in the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War, after Nazi Germany invaded in 1941. Gorbachev went to law school, went to Moscow to study at Moscow State University, where he met his wife, Raisa, and studied political philosophy and the classics. Later, many years later, in the early 1990s, he would talk about having read Thomas Jefferson and the impact that Jefferson's writings had had on his own thinking. But Gorbachev was intelligent and capable, and the party saw promise in him. He bounced around up through the rungs of the party And had the chance in some provincial postings to meet vacationing general secretaries at the Soviet Union, like Leonid Brezhnev uh, and the longtime head of the KGB, Yuri Andropov, who succeeded Brezhnev as general secretary. Gorbachev was called back to Moscow in 1980, he served as agriculture minister, and in that capacity traveled to the West on a few occasions. Went to Canada in 1983, uh, where he interacted with Alexander Yakovlev, who became one of his chief advisors critical to the programs of Glasnost and Perestroika. Went famously to the United Kingdom in 1984, where Margaret Thatcher remarked that he was a man with whom we could do business, something that is oft associated with the Gorbachev story. And then in 1985, March of 1985, Gorbachev became the General Secretary of the Soviet Union. And a few things are worth mentioning, maybe, about Gorbachev becoming General Secretary— he was markedly younger than the men who had held the office before him. There's sort of a strain and let's of, put that
2: into context, Susie. So we're just saying he wasn't an octogenarian. Is that what we're saying there?
3: Yes. So all of his, his three immediate predecessors, Leonid Brezhnev, Yuri Andropov, and Konstantin Chernyenko, well, they died in 1982, 1984, and 1985, respectively, all of them elderly uh, and quite sick, particularly in Andropov and Chernyenko's cases. So people looking back on the Soviet Union of the early 1980s often talk about stagnation and gerontocracy, this steady parade of old men, half in the grave already, as general secretaries presiding over the Soviet Union. Gorbachev, by comparison, was 54 when he became general secretary. And so it really seemed to be a generational passing of the torch. But I want to sound a note of caution here. I think if you've read an obituary of Mikhail Gorbachev in the last few days, you have maybe seen a phrase like, he was a breath of fresh air or a break from the past. And those things are easy for us to see now. In retrospect, we know how the Cold War ended. We know what happened to the Soviet Union. It existed no more, right? We know that Gorbachev was the last general secretary of the Soviet Union But in 1985, March of 1985, when Gorbachev becomes general secretary, how new Gorbachev will be is not entirely clear. And that remains a mystery uh, for a number of years, actually, while Gorbachev is in office. And that's something that's really easy for us to forget, but helps us explain a little bit of the politics and negotiation, why the late 1980s look the way that they do.
2: Well, that's a really good point because, you know, the character of the person matters here and it's not like he's having to deal with shrinking violets with weak figures in international politics. You look who's around at the time, we're talking about Thatcher, we're talking about Reagan. So how do those initial discussions take place and what sort of nuclear situation does Gorbachev inherit at this point in time?
3: Yeah, so if we think about March 1985, we're thinking about a period in the Cold War where The Cold War had looked particularly dangerous. Uh, The United States and the Soviet Union, the two superpowers, had immense numbers of nuclear weapons fielded by this point. There had been arms control agreements in the 1970s, particularly the strategic arms limitation talks, but there had been no concrete deals made since uh, SALT II in 1979, which never really came into full force. It was followed by the United States but the United States Senate never approved it, right? So you have a situation where the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union have not met in a summit since 1979. The last summit had been between Jimmy Carter and Leonid Brezhnev in June 1979 to sign that SALT II agreement that I just talked about. And in the intervening years in the early 1980s, there had been immense anxiety about the prospect that the superpowers might fight a nuclear war, right? This is the era of war games and the day after and Threads and Sting's song Russians and Nana's 99 red balloons, right? So you have this huge cultural fear that the Soviet Union and the United States are going to fight a nuclear war. And the so fact, if you think
2: things are bad now, Susie, then they were pretty bad then.
3: I am here to be a classic historian and tell you that things have been bad in the past, too. And that moment in the early 1980s was terrifying. If you talk to people who grew up in the early 1980s, who watched a movie like The Day After, in which nuclear war breaks out, those mushroom clouds, those images are sort of seared in people's brains, and they... They illustrated just how dangerous the Cold War was, still was, how dangerous nuclear weapons were, and the prospect that the confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States and their respective allies in NATO and the Warsaw Pact could boil over into some sort of horrible conflagration. And
2: Threads, Susie, Threads was the British film, right? It was, it was um, yes. set somewhere like Sheffield. Oh, I might have got that wrong, but it showed the impact of... nuclear war on a city and on civilians.
3: Yeah, so these terrifying images. Uh, There were a number of newspaper sort of advice columns suggesting and making recommendations about whether people should let their children watch these movies, right? So it goes to show just how, how much of a cultural moment many of these films were, things like The Day After and Threads. And so I provide that context to just emphasize the degree to which the Cold War was still permeating everything about international politics in the in the 1980s, and when Gorbachev comes to power in March of 1985. His very short-lived successor, Konstantin Chernyanko, had just agreed that the Soviet Union and that Soviet negotiators would go back to the negotiating table with the United States on nuclear issues. So they agreed to start a new set of umbrella talks and space talks that would include discussions about strategic weaponry, would include discussions about intermediate-range nuclear forces or INF, and then would also include discussions about defense and space. And Particularly of interest to the Soviet Union in that last basket was this proposal from the Reagan administration for the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, or almost always we think of it as Star Wars. And so Soviet negotiators hoped to be able to restrict and limit Star Wars as part of that third basket of these umbrella talks. So that's how the stage is set when Gorbachev comes to power in March of 1985. So the
2: door was already kind of ajar. It was already half open for Gorbachev. The scene had been set for talks. There was the possibility that an agreement could be reached. Still early days, it would take a a leading statesperson to be able to push this forward. But, you know, some of the work had already been done.
3: Yes, anybody who has spent any time reading about the history of US Soviet arms control during the Cold War will know that just because a forum existed for talks and they had agreed to talk did not mean that an agreement was suddenly right around the corner. So it was huge. It had taken the United States and its NATO allies most of 1984 to convince the Soviet Union to come back to the negotiating table. Uh, they had walked out of talks on intermediate range nuclear forces in late 1983. And so it was a big win to get the Soviet Union back to the negotiating table. But Gorbachev and his advisors still had plenty of work ahead of them to think about whether they wished to reach an agreement, what an agreement might look like, how all of the pieces of these talks, right, strategic weapons, SDI and space, and intermediate-range nuclear forces might fit together, was a pretty complicated question. And when Gorbachev starts, so Gorbachev comes into office, Gorbachev's initial stance is one that terrifies many of the Western allies, Western leaders and officials, because Gorbachev begins to churn out proposals for arms control talks at a just blistering pace. Some of them are unilateral proposals, things like a moratorium on Soviet nuclear testing. Some of them are bilateral proposals, so calls for new proposals to limit intermediate-range nuclear forces. Some of them are sweeping, giant proposals. Gorbachev suggests, for instance, that the world be a nuclear-free place by the year 2000. And so Western officials look on terrified about what this might mean, about whether this will drive a wedge into the alliance, dividing the various NATO allies from one another. They worry about whether this will convince their publics, right, their voters, that defense spending isn't necessary anymore, that all of the investments in NATO's defenses are not worth it because this Gorbachev guy wants to do a deal. And they're afraid that Gorbachev's proposals aren't real, that Gorbachev is using the old tricks of the Soviet playbook, churning out these fanciful, amazing, really tempting offers in the hopes of scoring political points, not of actually reaching an agreement. And so when I say that Gorbachev didn't necessarily look like a break from the past in 1985 or 1986, these are the kinds of things I'm referring to, that allied officials looked at these proposals and went... But this looks a lot like what his predecessors did, men like Nikita Khrushchev.
2: So they wondered if this was all a little bit of of hot air, a bit of political blustering. But that would only make sense if it was politically palatable back in Russia. So was this something that was popular? Is this something that the Russian people wanted? It, It seems strange that such a direct change of course, after so many years of investing and building up their military, of which they're incredibly proud, would then be popular to just move away and and go for complete nuclear disarmament by the year 2000?
3: The question of public opinion in the Soviet Union is always a thorny one because how the Soviet people felt about these initiatives was varied, as is true in all cases of public opinion, but also not necessarily widely reported and not necessarily widely considered as a factor in Soviet policy, though of course the considerations of the populace shape politics in any country regardless of their political system.
0: month on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I'll be asking, who really were the Vikings? How did they become so successful in spreading across Northern Europe and beyond, from the late 8th to the 11th centuries? What are the stories we tell about them, and what legacy did they leave behind for us today? I'm Dr Kat Jarman, and throughout September, I'll be examining the big questions about the Vikings with a host of experts, and answering all of your burning questions about the Viking Age as well. So, for everything you always wanted to know about the Vikings, subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
2: And I guess we only need to look at Ukraine today to see about the limits of information the public get hold of and the varying degrees of public support or disdain for the war in Ukraine.
3: Of course, it's a prime example of how information spreads in a society and what information is and isn't trickling down to the general public. But in the case of Gorbachev, what is so fascinating is that so many of Gorbachev's own advisors thought he was also replaying the old Soviet playbook. So men who worked for him wondered whether these calls were genuine initiatives or whether they were calculated moves to exploit the weaknesses of a democratic society, of an alliance built largely of democratic societies. And so even in their memoirs, many of Gorbachev's advisors talk about how it was unclear whether Gorbachev was still swimming with the stream of the past or whether he had decided to make a definitive break for it. This is a really interesting thing as a historian, right? When you go back, you know how things have turned out, and you go back into the records, it's easy to see the lines, to connect the dots, because you know the destination. But for those people who are living alongside it, there are so many different options on the table that figuring out where the next dot is or what the aim or objective of a leader is especially in a case like Gorbachev, where he had political incentives maybe not to reveal to everyone who worked for him what his intentions were or or why he wished to pursue a certain course, right? He struggled with bureaucratic and domestic politics as much as any leader in a democratic country. And so that effort at managing the various factions and, and pieces of the Soviet system meant that even Soviet advisors, people in the in the foreign policy and defense establishment, didn't necessarily know what Gorbachev intended with these proposals.
2: So ambiguity was a political survival mechanism in that tricky business of Soviet politics. I mean, he almost came undone a couple of times. Um, I'm reminded of that Soviet coup attempt in 1991 that he barely survived, but you know he does have some major successes as well so take us into inf you know what made it so revolutionary what made it able to be agreed between the us and russia
3: the inf treaty was a remarkable political agreement in so many senses it was the first agreement that the united states and the soviet union signed that abolished an entire class of nuclear weapons Previous arms control agreements had put limits and caps on how many types of a certain weapon might be produced. And sometimes these caps were even higher than the number of weapons already deployed. So they weren't exactly meaningful reductions. INF changed that, right? Abolishing this entire group of nuclear weapons, every land based missile with global coverage with a range between 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers. So The scope of that agreement was significant, and it signaled the fact that a a true reduction agreement, not just limitation or ceilings, could be achieved. It was significant because the Soviet Union agreed to massive inspection as a part of this agreement, right? Making sure that there were monitoring and inspection, invasive monitoring and inspection protocols to ensure transparency, to make sure that both of the signatories, the United States and the Soviet Union, were abiding by that. And that was a huge shift in Soviet policy. For decades, the Soviet Union had resisted that kind of inspection, seeing it as a Trojan horse for intelligence gathering and the like. And so it gave hard evidence that Gorbachev's talk of openness and transparency, critical to his program of glasnost and Perestroika, was real. Right? It put Gorbachev's money where his mouth was, so to speak. But the agreement itself, it was also fundamentally an imbalanced agreement. The Soviet Union agreed to get rid of many more weapons than the United States did. And you'll notice that when I laid out the terms of the agreement, I specifically mentioned ground-based, land-based missiles. It meant that other forms of intermediate-range missiles, so sea-based missiles, air-launched missiles, were left unchecked. The United States had a comparative advantage in both of these fields. And if we think about some of the critical pieces of the U.S. warfighting capability in the 1990s, they relied on weaponry like cruise missiles, air-launched cruise missiles and the like that were unchecked by the INF Treaty. And so the INF Treaty was also in many respects an admission that the Soviet Union was in trouble that the Soviet Union needed, that Gorbachev felt the Soviet Union needed to reach an agreement at this point, that it needed to let up the arms race in some way, uh, whether to reduce the financial pressures on the Soviet Union, whether to reduce the political tension with the United States. But much of Gorbachev's calculation was informed by the fact that the Soviet Union was not in a great way uh, by 1987 when he and Reagan signed the INF Treaty.
2: So is it economic drivers that are pushing Gorbachev here? He's looked at the books and he's seen we cannot continue to produce and maintain this many weapons at this rate. And we need to bring an end to this arms race.
3: Economics play a huge role. uh, And the Soviet economic situation goes through sort of booms and busts in the 1980s. But the bottom line doesn't look good. By 1986, 1987. But it's not just economic. It's, it's tempting, uh, and certainly many political partisans who are supportive of Ronald Reagan and his policies like the narrative of the United States bankrupted the Soviet Union or communism collapsed under the contradictions of its own economic failures. But there were other motivating factors for Gorbachev also. Uh, take, for instance, April 1986 and the disaster at Chernobyl that brought home Gorbachev's handling of that incident is hardly a record of success. But that incident brought home the degree to which nuclear weapons were dangerous, the sheer damage that nuclear weapons that those technologies might unleash. And Gorbachev comes away from that, convinced of the need to Reduce uh, nuclear weapons. And this is something that Gorbachev uh, continued to champion through his life, uh, writing op eds about the need for a nuclear free world, the fact that nuclear weapons were one of, in his estimation, one of the most damaging and dangerous things in human society. Uh, This is something that uh, guided his thinking uh, in, in his years in power, but also beyond.
2: Well, Susie, you've given us a real flavor for Gorbachev's time in power, his leadership style, his indecision, his decisions, his success, his failures. But his crowning achievement has to be INF. Is it fair to say that this is his legacy? And if so, what sort of state is it in today?
3: Gorbachev was certainly optimistic about what he and Reagan had been able to achieve with the INF Treaty. He himself referred to it as the first major step out of the Cold War. So its significance was considerable. It signaled that the United States and the Soviet Union could make dramatic breakthroughs, that they could reduce the dangers of nuclear war, that they could abolish an entire class of nuclear weapons. I can't overstate the symbolism of how significant that moment was, though It's always important to remember that what they managed to get rid of was only a small fraction of the U.S. and Soviet nuclear arsenals. And the treaty itself came under fire at the time from peace activists who concluded that it was just a drop in the bucket, something like 3% of the overall nuclear arsenal, a reminder of just how big and sweeping both superpowers' arsenals were even in the final years of the Cold War. The treaty itself was a critical part of a group of treaties designed to build confidence between the West uh, and the East. At the end of the Cold War, we think about things like open skies and efforts to secure strategic arms reductions. Much of that artifice now has collapsed. The INF treaty itself uh, was in trouble in the 2010s. Already in the Obama administration, there were Accusations that the Russians had cheated on the treaty, the Russians in an entirely predictable response accused the United States of cheating on the treaty, and these recriminations went back and forth about whose weapons programs and systems were in violation of the agreement. That back and forth remained uh, until the Trump years, when ultimately the Trump administration concluded that it was not worth staying party to a treaty if the Russians were not willing to abide by it, and the treaty collapsed uh, formally in 2019. So if you've been following this issue at all, you may have seen speculation about whether there will be a new intermediate-range nuclear force arms race, though often In a telling uh, illustration of how the political center of gravity has shifted, much of the speculation is not about whether the United States and Russia will have an arms race in Europe, but rather about what this will mean for competition in Asia, and particularly between the United States and the People's Republic of China, and U.S. posture and its allies' posture in Asia to deal with the threat from China. So... In evaluating the legacy, it's a fraught question because the agreement was so significant to the atmosphere and the trust built up that helped bring about an end to the Cold War, but its long-term legacy is more mixed. It was in place for a generation, but now we are in a situation where those constraints are no longer with us. And INF is, of course, not the only casualty to have been dismantled relatively recently.
2: Absolutely, and some of the things that worry me are that the latest announcement that the inspections will stop as well, because you know Putin's saying that Russia can't get through airspace because airspace has been closed off to carry out their own inspections. So it's something that isn't mutual, and so it has to be brought to an end. So as we look at the current tense world in which we live, do we need to start thinking? You know, do we need a, a, another Gorbachev in the world?
3: That is such a hard question because Gorbachev himself is so complicated. I think, as somebody who has spent a long time thinking about INF, often when I am asked to comment on contemporary relevance, I start with a fairly obvious point. Vladimir Putin is not Mikhail Gorbachev. And so if we want to learn the lessons of the past, assuming that we can replicate what many see to be the successes of Western policy— though I would argue its legacy was a little bit more mixed. And if we look at the transatlantic relationship, there was a lot of turmoil in the INF story, including after the signing of the INF Treaty. But even if you are tempted to apply that as sort of a a lesson that might be brought into the present, a script that might be replayed is perhaps a better way to phrase it, why would you assume that this could work with Vladimir Putin, who is so different than Mikhail Gorbachev? I think that temptation ignores the degree to which INF was made possible by Gorbachev himself, his own views, his own political style, his own willingness to acknowledge the limitations of the Soviet Union. If we think about how, And why the United States and the Soviet Union reached an agreement. I don't want to downplay the fact that Reagan and his advisors, of course, played a critical role, that U.S. and Soviet negotiators played a critical role. But it's Mikhail Gorbachev who, in February of 1987, agrees that it's time to break intermediate range nuclear forces out of a package deal, that he's no longer going to try and link INF, an agreement on INF, to the Strategic Defense Initiative. It's Gorbachev who wants to move ahead and get an agreement. And those things are so critical in making the treaty possible.
2: But then, Susie, so I just wonder then, you made the really good point that INF was unequal, uneven in the fact that it left the Soviet Union in a situation where it got rid of some of its advantage. So, you know, that leaves Russia weaker as we transition from the Cold War. And we can say that INF does mark the end of that Cold War period, So does it create a bit of a power void where it allows a more powerful Putin to rise up in power and, as we see today, try and restore Russian grandeur? If anything, is Putin a product of the Gorbachev era? So just to completely destroy my own question, do we need less Gorbachevs?
3: The biggest thing that Gorbachev provides in contemporary politics, I think, is a narrative. And... It has been telling in the days since Gorbachev's death how different those narratives look depending on where you sit. But take a Russian narrative, for instance. It's a very popular Russian narrative, though there's by no means only one narrative. But a very popular Russian narrative is that Gorbachev is the person who presided over critical decline, the decline of the Soviet Union, the dismantling of the Soviet Union, of course, but that Gorbachev... Signed agreements like INF that left Moscow's power diminished. Vladimir Putin has regularly talked about how the INF treaty was a mistake made by a general secretary who just didn't know better or wasn't willing to stick to his guns and stand up for a good, favorable deal that the Russians could have. Uh, You can find any number of Putin quotations along these lines grievances. And so Gorbachev, in many respects, has provided a narrative that has enabled politicians like Putin to use him as a scapegoat, to blame him for Russia's decline, Russia's relatively more limited stature, the fact that Russia is not the Soviet Union anymore, the fact that Russia is not always recognized as a superpower anymore. And there is a history there to point to that has been used and manipulated and Mobilized in various ways by not just Putin, but Putin is a good example, in service of a a broader political cause. And I think we can contrast that with the sort of very laudatory Western attitudes towards Gorbachev, right? Heralding him as a, a man who ended the Cold War, who brought about this incredible change in European politics. But I would end with the sort of central Gorbachev paradox, which is how much can we give him credit for something that he maybe didn't intend to do? If you do something by accident, do you really get credit?
2: Wow. Well, that is one question to end on. I tell you that. But Susie, you've also really helped us to understand why Putin will not be attending Gorbachev's funeral. Uh, Now it makes sense in Putin's eyes. But you have to tell us, because you are the expert on this topic, where can we read more about nuclear missiles in Europe during this period? Where can we read
3: more of your work? I have a new book coming out with the lovely people at Cornell University Press. It's out in November. It's called Euromissiles, the Nuclear Weapons That Nearly Destroyed NATO. Start with the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis and go through the very end of the Cold War with a little smattering of contemporary politics, including Vladimir Putin, in the conclusion.
2: And please tell me, is it available for pre-order?
3: It is, and it is out officially on November 15th.
2: Perfect. We'll put a link into the show notes. Susie, thank you so much for your time. I can't believe this is your first time on the Warfare Podcast. We're going to have to have you on again soon. We'll have you on again when the book comes out.
3: Wonderful. I'll look forward to it. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks for listening. But before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War and you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network ad-free so you can listen to warfare without the interruptions but also to all our shows like matt and cat on gone medieval or tristan on the ancients to sign up just follow the link in the show notes
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time